From being on first-name terms with your customer to knowing how many sugars they take in their coffee or the best way to contact them, small and medium businesses have always excelled at offering personal touches. And it pays to get personal. It can really set you apart from the competition, making your customers feel special and want to buy from you again. But nowadays, customers want more. They expect to be able to shop in store, online and on mobile while still getting an experience that's tailored to them. And they want it around the clock. So how do you power up your personal service for the digital age? I'm Kate Russell and this is In Good Company, a show full of SME chat with a slice of tech. Brought to you by BT. Personalization. It's the buzzword on the lips of every tech entrepreneur and startup CEO. It's when you harness all the information you have about a customer, their name, birthday, interests, perhaps even their current location, to provide a bespoke online experience that speaks specifically to them. Think of the way Amazon recommends products or Netflix suggests what you should watch or Facebook filters your timeline based on what you've liked before. And research backs up the hype. Nearly 60% of customers who've experienced online personalization believe it influenced their spending. What's more, 44% said they'd shop with that business again. But if they don't get the sort of personal touches they've come to expect, over half said they'd take their custom elsewhere. Unfortunately, less than half of UK businesses think they're doing a good job of providing quality one-to-one experiences, both off and online. So, what can we do to buck this trend and provide a better service? Today I'm joined by guests who are doing more with data to put personal attention at the centre of their SMEs. Edward Williams and Maiden Chelsea's Jamie Lang, who together run confectionery company Candy Kittens. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having us. Oh, you went first. Hello, thank you for having us. <laughs> it's a pleasure. And Mel Nicky, founder of baby to body an innovative health and wellness app for pregnant and new mothers. Hello. Hi. And finally, our expert. We always have one. This episode is Adrian Swinsco, who is a customer experience advisor with 20 years in the industry, and he's written the book on it. Well, two, actually. How to Wow... And uh, the new book out soon, Punk CX. Welcome to you, Adrian. How are you doing? Uh, Jamie and Edward, you are eight years into Candy Kittens now, and it's grown exponentially in that time. Uh, what's the journey been like for you guys? And tell us a bit about the company and how it, how it came about. Epic, right, Ed? It's been good fun, <laughs> definitely, yeah. Yeah, it's been amazing. I mean, uh, we were talking about before the podcast came on that it's, it's incredible to kind of wake up every day and... Uh, you know, be able to go into work and actually you founded the business or you run the business. It's a kind of incredible feeling. And um, the eight, over the eight years, it's been tough and it's been hard, but it's been an exciting journey. You know, Ed and I uh, started this when we were 21 and 22. Yep. We are 21, 22 years old. Um, and I had this whole vision that I wanted to create a uh, sexy sweet shop. My two or three heroes in life were Peter Pan, Hugh Hefner and Willy Wonka. And <laughs> I wanted to create a mixture of that. And uh, that was the idea behind it. I wanted to do a sweet store which is around called Dylan's Candy Bar in New York, which is run by Ralph Ren's daughter, Dylan Ren. Um, and I wanted to do that. And I, I met Ed and he said, let's not do that. It's a terrible idea, but let's make packets of sweets. Let's make them innovative and different and fun and not focused on uh, young children and focused on 
uh, all ages. And together, we put our minds together and we came up with Candy Kittens, and that's how it kind of started eight years ago. I mean, it's not exactly an uncrowded area, is it, the confectionery area? It was a bold move to, to take on that industry, wasn't it? How... Uh... It is, yeah, and I kind of find myself sometimes people come to us with ideas for advice and they say, oh, we're thinking of starting this cereal. And I think, well, why would you want to do that? There's so many brands. And then I think back to what we did and <laughs> we did exactly the same thing. I think actually those markets and categories that are crowded often are where you can find the most opportunity, ironically. There's there's so much noise that people just kind of tend to to follow in the footsteps of everybody else. And, and actually... Those, those categories are ripe for being challenged, and that's exactly what we did. We came in and thought completely differently, approached it in a completely new way, and, and I hope offered something new to customers and, and proven in retailers across the country that we are bringing those customers into the aisle that just weren't buying sweets before. Yeah. And, and what's interesting about that, and Adrian, this is where you stare at me and go, hell, that's not true. Um, but I think that, you know, what Ed said is so interesting about, uh, I think that, we, and I said naivety when you, st- when you set up a brand is so important because otherwise you're following whatever everyone else is doing. As Ed said, you follow that logic, a place where you don't want to be where everyone else is. You know, Ed and I went into a crowded market, uh, the confectionery market, but we, by accident, came across a new category, gourmet gummy candy. That wasn't there. You know, we made our sweets £2.49 because we couldn't afford the margins. We made them gluten-free because we thought that'd be interesting. And no one had done that before. I love that. Yes. Adrian, do you agree? I think you're absolutely right. I think the, the interesting thing is that often new entrants into a market that have got no experience are sometimes the, the best players. Because if you're already in the market and you're trying to innovate within the market, the, the, the challenge that you face is that you have this curse of expert knowledge. And so you end up with all these assumptions. You go, we can't do that, we can't do that, can't do that because they've seen it all before. But coming in, you don't make any assumptions. You just go, oh, we do that, be good. Do that, be nice. Do that, that might be that would be interesting. And that and and oftentimes that can seem to really really work because your naivety, and your innocence can carry you a long way. Jamie, I. Ed disallowed the shop, but uh, the retail space has been uh, quite big for you as your journey just for your sweet company. Can you talk to us about how you've uh, used that to personalise indoor in-store experiences? There's quite a lot of things I've had to disallow, by the way. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, I wanted to create a gummy gummy sweet covered in chocolate. He said no to that. Um, I'm with you on that, Ed, I think. (laughs) But do you know what? You know, we've had... Retailers are hard people to deal with anyway, and it's been a struggle because, uh, you know... What Ed was saying is that we didn't have any money, but I had joined a TV show and I we sort of used that as a platform to kind of raise profile for our brand. Um, but the problem with doing something like that is that uh, the retailers then just look at you as someone who's on television and their product is just going to have no longevity. And we had to really jump over a lot of hurdles in order to get past that because at the end of the day, they care about the product's going to be good and it's going to have longevity and keep going. And so we finally got in. Well, our first big retailer that we got was Waitrose. Uh, And it was very exciting for us. Um, And the way we kind of stood out within the store is that our packets of sweets were different. They were colourful. They were bright. They were gluten-free. They were with real fruit juices and not just apple and orange juice concentrate. They were made with, you know, strawberry or blueberry and all those different things. Now, you have your own online store as well, so you can sell to customers directly. What kind of considerations did you have to take with your team as, as you were setting up the store in terms of customer experience? It's an interesting one. Again, to go back to the early days of the business, we had no retailers and, and no kind of distribution 
other than our own. So the website played a really, really key part. That was essentially the only place you could buy our product and interact with us. So in the beginning, our whole team was focused on that. And actually, we had an in-house designer, we had customer service, uh, we had people fulfilling the orders, and everybody was just totally focused. And at that point, we were able to deliver, I think, a a really first-class personal experience with the customers. So personalized email responses, handwritten notes with every order, really kind of nice things. If something was late, we'd call somebody. If we knew we'd messed up, we'd hand deliver the thing to somebody's house or whatever it was. And we were really kind of going above and beyond all the time. As the business grew, our focus switched to looking after these big, nasty retailers. And we kind of dropped the ball on that. Really, We really did. And we hold our hands up and admit that. And now only over the last kind of 18 months, we're putting focus back into the website. So we've now got an e-commerce manager that manages the platform. Um, and we're doing everything we can to, to try and deliver the best experience. And that really now comes down to mobile for us. I mean, 85, 90% of our traffic is mobile traffic. And we, we had a website that just wasn't working very well and looking very good on your phone. So that was a, a key mistake. And I think also, even in the short period of time that Jamie and I have run the business, eight, seven, eight years, the shift to, towards mobile and, and the way that people are using websites differently has been massive. So even for us, to, as I think, you know, still fairly young entrepreneurs that have our finger on the pulse, that's been a big thing that we've had to get used to. And, and we're only just catching up now. It's actually the smallest issue within your business that causes the biggest problem so don't go what it's normally you know the fact that our website what didn't really what didn't really work for mobiles you know and so just change that you your celebrity one would have thought it would be a massive bonus but you know as you've said it was actually in some ways a hindrance but when it comes to sort of getting the word out there presumably you relied heavily on social media and 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 your fans spreading the word for you initially was that or did you have other tools at your your disposal I, i definitely think so i think there are a lot of things you know i think uh if we look at some if you if you think of a footballer you think of ronaldo if you think of um you know, a tennis player, you can go Federer. If you, if I say to you, name a rugby league player, you'd say, well, I don't know one. And that's because they don't have a spearhead. I think a spearhead within a product or something like that is quite important. We're in the day of using influencers and different things like that. Mm-hmm. But we realized that from the beginning that if someone had a voice for our business, uh, it was going to be quite valuable. Um, but the problem with that is that I joined a TV show which was about young posh kids drinking champagne, working, living off their parents' money. So it was, it was a very kind of careful road that we had to go down. Um, and it did help. Yes, it 100% helped. It helped get our name out there. It helped uh, get our foot in the door with different situations. However, there is a ceiling to that. And then it was about people who probably didn't like me or didn't like the idea of Main Chelsea or didn't even watch TV. How do we then get those people to then engage and eat our sweets and, and engage with our brand? And that was a really t- difficult task for us to do. The initial thing was great. We used social media. As Ed said, we were the first business to launch via social media. Twitter actually wanted to do an article on us. Um, but then again, how do you then progress forward? Because you can't just do it, you know. And also these people who were fans then grow up and they don't watch the TV show anymore. So how do you spread out of that kind mm. of area? That was our biggest challenge. Ed, your use of influencers is really interesting because you haven't, you know, picked the big, high, high-hitting, big profile social medias. Actually, um, it seems like uh, they're just ordinary people who love your sweets. Can you talk to us about your influencer program? Yeah, absolutely. So we run something called the Sweet Squad, which is um, basically you put sweet in front of any word in our business and you've got one of the kind of various initiatives. So we, the Sweet Squad for us is a close-knit group of customers. They were already existing customers. And we, tr- we went through all of our kind of Instagram following and picked 
customers that we felt best represented our brand and, and were, were doing something interesting. So they maybe have 100 followers, they maybe have 5,000 followers, but they're not necessarily traditional influencer numbers. Um, and we engage with them, we have them in a WhatsApp group, we talk to them every day, we include them in kind of decisions about what the next flavor should be, what the packaging should look like, what we're, what we're doing with the website and get their kind of instant feedback. And then on a monthly basis, we send them a box of sweets, but also kind of treats from other friends, companies and other bits and pieces, kind of keep them engaged. They come to all of our events. And then when we need something and we, we ask, you know, we've just launched this new product, could you post about it? It all just kind of happens quite naturally and they want to do us a favor in return. So it's kind of a way for us to really kind of control and manage that word of mouth that you otherwise would struggle probably to, to get or you would just hope you'd get it. But that's been interesting for us and quite exciting. We tend not to pay any influencers. We don't work with big big influencers. Occasionally, they will post products for us by chance. Um, you might find some sweets in a dressing room somewhere or something, and, and that happens, which is always nice. But yeah, we don't we don't pay anybody. It's all kind of small stuff. And I think that's a nicer way of, again, being authentic and looking after the right people. Uh, you encourage customers on your website to sign up. You get the pop-up. Yeah. Um, how do you personalize those? And do they, do they actually work still email seems so last century now <laughs> we're actually trialing a few new things at the moment and one of those things is video via email so actually sending people a, a welcome message personalized video welcome message so to say hi jamie thank you so much for signing up to our newsletter we're really looking forward to showing you x y and z or whatever it might be um same with birthday messages you know it's kind of i suppose um tried and tested that now, but it's it's nothing new there, but it really does work. And I think that people still, I mean, I'm a sucker for that myself. I bought a new pair of trainers last month because I said, it's your birthday, here has 20% off. And I think that is the sort of thing that people like. So it's those kind of little treats. Um, and trying to surprise people where we can, we do, we do things with the Facebook pixel on our website. So actually tracking people's movement around the site and then working out what flavors they've been looking at and then perhaps sending them a sample of a flavor. Oh, we noticed you like the look of watermelon. Here's a sample. Oh, okay. um, that kind of thing. And now, Edward, I understand you're even developing a chatbot for WhatsApp. Can you explain to listeners what it is and how it'll help you personalize your service further? Yes, we're trying our best. So we've launched a WhatsApp plugin for the website. So people can now just jump on and you click the WhatsApp button and, and you're messaging us instantly. And that's been far more successful than we could have ever imagined. Um, the amount of messages we get is quite quite amazing. And people just very quickly, oh, do you offer X postage? Do you do this? Do you do, where's my order? Quick questions. It's much, much quicker. Um, and we're developing an, a, a chat bot so that people can order directly through WhatsApp. So people might say, I would like to order a box of wild strawberry. And then they, we'll take their car details, et cetera, over WhatsApp and process that order. And then next time around, they can just send us a message as simple as, same again, please. Well, chat apps sound like a great way of keeping the conversation going with customers in a in a way that feels natural, kind of like texting. But have any of you thought about using voice for, uh, you know, maybe an Alexa app or something? Yeah, so we're integrated with Alexa and you can wake up in the morning and say, Alexa, read me my baby to body tips or how old is my baby? So there's a bunch of questions that you can use and Alexa will actually read out Today, you have 196 days to go before you give birth. And this is how big the baby is. And this is what you should be eating. And this is a motivational tip for today. So it kind of mirrors what's in the app. We have a lot of podcasts. We have a lot of kind of visualization exercises, meditations, even exercises, but, you know, only voice, mm. um, thoughts of the day, all kinds of things. Um, even, you know, here's a recipe for you in voice. And those are really, really popular. Uh, apologies, we, by the way, to everybody listening at home who's got now uh, various voice assistants. 
piping in because we've been triggering them like oh, yes. crazy. Alexa, buy some candy. Yeah. <laughs> Siri, cancel that order. <laughs> have you got? Have you thought about voice for yourselves? Because it, it seems we like are doing a few good. bits. So we've we've got a uh, sampling method that works with Alexa. So you can say Alexa, send me a sample, which is quite interesting. So we can put things on a you know perhaps um, a physical delivery that goes to somebody's house. You can then put a card in, say, and ask Alexa to send you a sample of candy kittens. So you, you do that, and it does send you a sample the next day. Um, I expect to have to send a lot of those samples out after this air. Yeah, well, no, please ask. It's, it's <laughs> quite uh, early days, I think. But for me, voice, in my opinion, is definitely going to become bigger and bigger. Candy Kittens, obviously, you know, you guys are moving forwards with all of the digitization. You've actually been um, been doing it now for you. You completely transformed the way that you work um, and business is booming. Yes, um, it is. It's fantastic. Can you tell us about your app and how it works? And it's quite different from traditional pregnancy apps, isn't it? Yeah, so the problem we were solving is that there's a lot of information out there. There's, there's It's very confusing and none of it is personalised. So our users um, had, you know, I'm the, oh my goodness, I'm pregnant moment and they would go to the internet and get um, inundated with a lot of information. Most of it was incredible. Most of it was not relevant to them. And it created a lot of confusion and anxiety. So what we've done is created this kind of engine that delivers a personalized program to each one of our users based on a number of different data points. So we use the profile data of the person the information they give us, for example, their due date or when they've had a baby, how old they are, um, what their lifestyle is like. And we ask all of these questions, but all of these questions have a purpose. So we're very, very strict about asking questions to get information so that they can get more value. And I think that's where it's really become kind of, you know, people expect that now, that if I'm going to tell you something, you're going to tell me something worthwhile in return. Mm. And we've made sure that everything we do is centered around the user. And we, you know, people send us emails and messages and, and reviews on the app store, like, you know me, how do you know what I'm going to be feeling? And this knows me. And that for us is remarkable. You've scaled to over 150 countries now that the, um, that the app is available in. Um, how are you able to keep that personal touch when you're spread so thin, both, you know, in terms of geographically and culturally, like the cultures in different countries are very different as well. Have you had to make provision for that? Yeah, so a lot of our um, content is written uh, geographically. So, for example, in the US, there's certain terminology and there's also certain spelling that you would use, whereas it would be different in the UK. So, for example, mum and mom you know, as as one example. And there's a lot of other things that um, are culturally uh, augmented on the app. And our technology, thankfully, is able to identify where somebody is and send them, you know, this is best practice in the UK um, in terms of tests that you need for your baby while you're pregnant. And then in the US it would be slightly different. So that's the way we've kind of done geographical uh, personalization. But we go a lot further than that. And we um, we have machine learning in, the, in our back end and we get to know our users as they use our product. So the more they use it, the more we know them. And that really just drives the data back into the back end so that we can then personalize the, the programs even more. And we're taking that you know, five steps for, forward in a few months' time when we're starting to integrate 
with wearables data, so from your Apple Watch or your trackers, um, self-reported data. So, for example, how did you sleep yesterday? How are you feeling? And that is all going to feed back into the, the back-end brain and the engine and actually create a much more personalized version. So kind of like having a personal trainer, nutritionist, and a well-being guru who knows you really well. Machine learning is really, I guess we call it artificial intelligence, but you know, purists would say it's machine learning, isn't it? It's not the machine isn't actually intelligent it just learns by watching seeing repetitions and then making extrapolations yeah so i think the simplest way to look at it is it's a rule base so those are the algorithms so the algorithm will say hi kate you're you know have 55 days to go to before you give birth and then in our back end we've got a whole bunch of rules based around that 55 day mark Right. And then based on another layer of another layer of data, which is, well, this is Kate. Well, we don't actually know it's you. It's X, Y, X, Y, whatever. Um, in the back end, we'll know a bunch of other things about you. And then our machine in the back end will say, actually, this person who's X, Y and this needs this content. And that's how we structure it. So it's actually it's algorithmic. And the more that the algorithms um, practice, the more they learn. So it's like having a child and saying, no, don't do that because X will happen. And then you teach and teach and teach. And sure enough, eventually the child will do what you want them to do. So now it's clear that there are lots of interesting ways to use data in AI. Has the analysis of your data, though, told you anything that's made you change the way that you work or change your processes? Yeah, there's lots of different ways that we use data in um, day to day and to make, to help us make the decisions. So initially, when we had no data it was basically, well, I think this is going to happen and let's see what happens. Mm -hmm. And then we wait and see what happens and we try it out. And, um, you know, to, to the point that you guys have made earlier, it's about listening to your customers. And the way that we do that is not by thinking what they want, but by actually looking at what they're doing. And that's the way we look at the data. So, you know, what pieces of content they love, what they don't, what is being read, what has never been read, what videos are they watching all the way through, which are the most popular, which are the, how many times have they been watched, what are they grading them because they can grade every single bit of content, which pieces of content are being um, favorited. So we use all of that to drive the decisions that we make about content production. But then we also use the data from the way that people use our app to help us to acquire new customers. So for example, the customers that are really engaged with the product and are coming back every single day, we want more like them. Now, Adrian, we've heard from two SMEs that have personalised their customer service in very different ways. Um, if they've inspired our listeners, what should they consider doing before making any changes to the way that they work? Anybody listening? Or should they just jump straight in and start, you know, doing all of the things that they've heard? Don't go off go don't go charging off and just changing everything um i would always tell people to be led by their customers you know start from a point of understanding um from a point of um re i mean really understanding i mean think about people that you know the data that you gather in your customers but also think about it more broadly is that we are not just customers we are human beings and being a customer is a subset of your life as it were. But so get to really understand the people, listen to them, ask them questions, ask them about their experience, ask them what works, what doesn't work, 
Um, and if you focus on eliminating the stuff that they find annoying, irritating, a little bit hard, then you'll just incrementally get better. And as, when you do that, you'll start actually uh, building trust with people, and then they're more likely to tell you kind of what else you can do that can help you build that relationship. What sort of personal information should they be using to improve these sort of one-on-one um, -on -one experiences online? Um, well, it all depends on what sort of... A, what sort of geographic geography and what sort of regulatory sort of environment you you operate in? But I think you need to be very careful. I, do, I think you need to be uh, not make assumptions about the sort of data that you think you should be collecting and just collecting data willy nilly, as it were. You should just um, you should always ask for permission, mm -hmm. and you should always be clear about what data you're collecting and for why. And be I mean as open as transparent as you can be with your with with, with your customers because actually. Again, it all comes down to trust. You know, people have, customers have data and privacy and security concerns. So the more open uh, and honest and transparent you, you are with them, the, the, the better um, the relationship is going to be. We've been talking so far about personalising online experiences. Can this data-driven approach be used to improve the face-to-face -face customer experience as well, do you think, Adrian? Uh, yes, I think so. I mean, I think the thing is, is that imagine you're a retailer or imagine that you go to uh, a hotel and you're a member of their... Uh, a membership program or a loyalty program, and you kind of they know that you're arriving, and then when you sign in, they go, ah, I see, Mr. Swinsko, you've stayed with us before, and you like X and Y and Z. You're like going, that's cool. Thank you very much. That just feels me. I, I feel slightly better taken care of, and that. So those sort of things can work, but actually, those things can be also just nice to have. So because I, I always think that companies forget about being brilliant at the basics. But really, more importantly, actually understanding what the basics are for their for their customers, yeah. and then being brilliant at them. The problem is, is that generally is quite hard work, takes discipline and commitment, and is not very sexy. And but those are the things that the really really good companies, I think, they get right all of the time. I was speaking to somebody that was a guy's CEO of a, user, a company called User Testing, and he was telling me about a, com a company that was going through an online e-commerce company, and they wanted to improve their checkout process. And they did all this data analysis and things, and they, they made it sort of really quick and straight through sort of processing now. So people bought stuff faster, but they, uh, it had a catastrophic effect on their propensity to, to repurchase. Because what they lost in the process of just efficiency was that the fact that their, cust their customers enjoyed this putting together this bundle of products and services um, that, that from their perspective, created the value, and that's the thing that created the relationship. So just going down the same old track, making things more convenient, more efficient, more and more quick, actually destroyed value for them, and then they end up having to unpick it all. Let's, we've been talking about a lot of consumer-facing sure. um, products and businesses at the moment, but is there a, is there a sort of a place for one-to-one -one experiences and improving them for the B two B market? I think absolutely. I mean, I think for for two reasons. One is that um, in business to business, it's always been about relationships. And therefore, as much as you can personalize it or, or um, include a bit of memory into that is, is always going to is always going to help. Now, so Adrian, t targeted newsletters have been around for a while already. And machine learning is a hot topic. But what do you think the future of personalization is going to look like? I think we're in an 
a period of change which is unprecedented. You know, you know, the number of channels is exploding, uh, technologies advancing. We're always keen to add new things like, you know, big data, machine learning, AI, neural networks, you know, chatbots, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I think that what it what those things do, they're all very interesting and 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 great. But they they just add layers of complexity onto our business. I think the thing we we need to be careful that we uh, that we do do is make sure that we try and simplify our businesses um, at, a, at the same, if not greater pace than we actually add complexity to it. Therein lies the challenge. We've run out of time, unfortunately, but before I close off the show, I would love to just come around the table and ask each of you to give me, if you could give one killer takeaway for, to our, our listeners uh, from the conversation today, the thing that you think is the most important thing that we've said and that they should action or think about for their own lives, what would it be? Uh, Mel, do you feel prepared to step into the breach and answer that first? So um, there's a couple of things. So I always think that um, you've always got to maintain your vision and your passion for um, what you're trying to achieve. And if you boil that down to how you want you to make your customers feel, that's always an amazing start. So I always say to, to my team, you know, how are we making our customers feel? every day with everything we do. And everything we do, we double check, is this really gonna make them feel the way we want them to feel? It starts in the heart. Absolutely. You can have that one. <laughs> Ed, what do you think? Um, I absolutely agree. I think it's about putting your customers first. And that comes down to every single decision that we make in the business. Is this something that we would want? Is it, are we behaving like a company that we would want to buy from? Be nice, be nice people and do good things. And I think that is the, the key to everything, really. I'm going to have that tattooed on me. <laughs> Being kind is cool. Being kind is cool. Okay. Um, my one would be about naivety is power. You know, it's very easy to go and ask for advice all around the place about what to do, how to build it, where to do this and do that. And actually, your gut instinct is normally pretty good. Uh, and the fact that you don't really know what you're doing is a good weapon to have. So be naive. It's a good thing to be. Wonderful. I, to echo that, actually, I, I remember a really powerful comment I had um, from somebody once who said, um, if someone tells you something can't be done, you should hear no one's done it yet. Yeah, totally. Along those lines, right? <laughs> Absolutely. And finally, Adrian. Uh, okay, so the in my experience, I've been to all these different sort of companies that are wrestling with this thing called experience. The big gap I, I come across again and again and again is that companies are generally very clear about what their business strategy is and where the vision is and things. The thing that uh, that seems to be missing with many companies, many brands, is that they don't necessarily know what their experience strategy is and how it complements and it enables their um, their business strategy and how it's going to help them get there and achieve it. And they don't understand necessarily, or don't necessarily have a clear view on how that varies across different parts parts of the journey and for different customer groups. And I think it's if you want to be successful in, get, in delivering the right sort of experience, you've got to go to that level of sophistication and sort of thinking in order to get it right. We are plumb out of time, I'm afraid. Customising your website's landing page based on a user's shopping history, automatically sending customers voucher codes for their birthdays, offering instant answers to queries using chatbots. If you embrace the digital tools that are out there, you can tailor your customer experience and perhaps even your whole business like never before. Thanks to the great company we've had in the studio today, to Jamie Lang, Edward Williams, Mel Nicky and Adrian Swinscoe. And thank you to you for listening as well. 
If you enjoyed this episode, give us a shout out on Twitter. You can tag us in on at BT Business and let us know what you found most useful. That's it from me, Kate Russell, in good company. For more insights, help and advice on staying open in business, head to bt.com forward slash stay open. And don't forget to check out our other episodes in this series of In Good Company. Goodbye. <laughs>